Okay, we're live. Hello and welcome to the Agile Context in a Podcast. I am joined this week by two very special guests. Uh, it's probably our most international podcast, actually. Um, we've got someone here from Stockholm in Sweden and Barcelona in Spain. So luckily, they're both in the, the same time zone. So it's not uh, it's not too too horrible for anybody this this time. But uh, really thrilled to have them with us. Uh, they are the, they are authors. I think the first authors we've had on the podcast as well, which is also very exciting. Um, of a book that I read very recently and and raced through uh, because it's uh, it it really is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and the book is called Mooseheads on the Table, which I will let them explain. It's a, it's a great title. It's um and and the 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 kind of beautiful um, meaning behind it that's very specific to the part of the world that uh, one of our guests is from. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose, um, without further ado, I'll introduce them. So we've got Karen Tanelius and Lisa Gill, uh, who are, who are co-authors of this book. Um, and before I let you guys jump in and, and kind of take over, um, what I love about the book, obviously the, the topic, um, is, is a great one. It's all about self-managing teams and self-managing organizations, which, which I love. I think it's a vastly underappreciated and under uh, underused um, in the workplace. And I think there's a lot of risk and, and fear that, that that comes with it, and that's p- perhaps why. But it's uh, one of those things that I think is the untapped potential there is is so great. And so that's why I, I loved reading it. I love anything that I can get my hands on that that talks about self managing organisations. Um, but I also loved for my linear brain and how that works is the way that you structured the book with the stories, but also you divide it up so that as you're reading it, you can, you can kind of grasp the, the pillars that you talk about and those, those insights, just super helpful for, to me. So obviously I recommend this book highly to, to anyone and everybody, but um, yeah, over, over to you guys. Um, tell us a bit about yourselves and would love to know how did, how did the book come about? You start Lisa. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having us. And it's so it's so lovely to hear how the book resonated with you. It was kind of a, I think it took us three years in the end to, to kind of write it and pull it together a lot longer than we thought, but it evolved a lot. Um, so it's really nice to hear that you enjoyed it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'll say something about me and how Karen and I met then, I guess. So um I, uh, I'm a self-management nerd, you could say. So I, before I met Karen, I had been reading lots of books about it and I had been really focusing on the structures and processes kind of part of, you know, self-managing teams and agile and things like that. Um, and my background before that was in learning and development. And then I met Karen in January, 2016, when a, a group of 12 strangers came together to explore the idea of setting up a company that would buy and transform other companies. And so Karen was there, of course, because she had done that. That's what we've written about mm. in the book. Mm. And uh, when I heard her telling her story of how these transformations that she had facilitated were really very little to do with structures and processes, but much more about the mindset, the way of being, the leadership, the culture, totally different kinds of dialogues. Mm. That to me was really fascinating. And I just felt like, oh, that's the missing piece that I've been looking for. And so I went on the, on the tough leadership training 
course like two weeks after that I think um, a few of us did and then Karen and I started this seed of the idea of you know would we like to write a book together um, and yeah since then I've been working with Tuff as well as a trainer as well as uh, hosting my own podcast Leadamorphosis and really continuing to support people in kind of doing this you know making it a reality not just talking about it but really trying things and wanting mm-hmm. to embolden people and share lots of stories and examples from around the world um so yeah that's that's how I kind of come to this work and it's it's really fun to get to talk about it with you both on the podcast yeah that that's that's really cool I, I like the discovery of the people and mindset piece because it's I think I mentioned before like my linear brain likes to find the the straight path through but it when you introduce people it gets very messy and I think um yeah it'd be great to this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you guys on because I think that part of it is where some of the fear sits for people as well. Um, it's not necessarily just following a process and, hey, presto, you've got self-managing teams. There's there's a lot more to it. So. If only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only. How about you, Karen? What's, yeah. what's your, the, your background with Lisa? Yes, so before I met Lisa, I had experimented with self-management from really 1999. Uh, and I was inspired by a guy in Brazil called Ricardo Samler. And he wrote, I never met him, but he wrote a book called Maverick very long ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, the story about him is he inherited a company and made it sort of self-organized bit by bit. And he he wrote about this in a very detailed way. uh, And I was intrigued by it. And uh, I come from the service industry, hotel hotel and tourism. And uh, I was taught also that uh, service quality comes from engaged uh, teams, engaged uh, co-workers, employees. Uh, and the only way to, to create engagement is to, to give people uh, authority and mandate. And uh, I read a lot of, of you know, uh, theory books about that, and then I didn't see much of it uh, around me when I started my career. Uh, so I got the chance to try this out, which uh, also is told in the book uh, in a small hotel. Uh, and I was really intrigued by the effect of that. Uh, I tried to mention this, you know, 20 plus years ago, and that was not <laughs> very welcome. Uh, I tried to lecture and people got upset and angry. So I sort of stopped doing that uh, because it was no fun. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I continued to get together with my colleagues to experiment, and uh, we even bought companies uh, and uh, transformed them to self-organized. Um, and then, and then, uh, sort of the the IT sector started to to talk about agile, and uh, that was exactly the same thing. And so I was a bit. Uh, discovered by the agile world in Sweden first and uh, learned that oh maybe the time has come <laughs> people listen mm. more um, and uh, yeah and then like, uh, a, a very um, important book came from Frederick Laloux uh, who and Lisa also worked with Frederick uh, for a while oh wow um, with, yeah with his blog uh, and then uh, I didn't have any connections outside of Sweden, really, professionally. Um, 
back in six years. And then this uh, woman connect uh, a woman called Dunia from uh, from Spain originally, but lived in Portugal. Uh, and she talked to Joste Block, another <laughs> another hero in the in the self managing world. Uh, and he he's a founder of a Dutch company called Burtzorg with uh, nurses that have no managers. Uh, and Dunia and Joss talked, and uh, Dunia said, "I want to buy companies and and flatten them." And then Joss said, "Oh, you m- must meet Karen," and that was the source of us ending up in Portugal, where I met Lisa. Long story. That's a that's a fantastic story. I love it, and I'll um I'll stick all the references to those those great people in the show notes for people to check out. What do you put down there? you said you went through, you were trying to, you know, trying to get the message out there and you gave up because people weren't open to it. What, what do you put down that acceptance to over time? I mean, you've referenced some of these people. Is it that? Is it maybe, is it agile ways of working? Like, yeah. What do you think it is? Yeah. I think uh, when, when we started our company also back in 2003, we wanted to offer something new and nobody was interested. And the thing that we met was that everything works, especially in Sweden. We're known for having a dem- dem- uh, democratic leadership, and uh, you know you don't co- you have to call your manager, you know, sir or anything. We're really sort of equal in Sweden at work, but mm. nevertheless we have a hierarchical dynamic, but that we're blind to sort of. Uh, so everyone think they are involving and coaching in Sweden since ages. Uh, so when we uh, try to interest companies or organizations, they say, what are you talking about? Everything is working perfectly. We are the most modern you know, leadership in the world. So we sat down a, a few times, my team and I, and said, well, oh, maybe we should stop doing this. Nobody wants it. Uh, and then we ended up, but what should we do instead? You know, this is what we love, love to do. And then time changed. And the pain, I think, was the, mm. was the thing that turned everything. So there was not so perfect anymore. People got sick, you know, burnout. Uh, mm. Like young people in Sweden, we have a school system that left obedience long ago <laughs> and and they won't accept you know uh, traditional leadership and so there was a lot of, and also the IT sector that sort of found out that big IT projects sort of collapsed because of the way they worked and then they sort of invented this agile they thought it was new it's not I mean those those uh, Thoughts and philosophies, they are ancient, really. They can, yeah. You can find mm-hmm. them in old China. You can find them in old Greece, you know, and the antique <laughs> era. Uh, so it's nothing new. It's just that it's forgotten about and not practiced. Mm. I, I absolutely love that because I, I do believe that all of these principles and this way, they're innately human and somewhere we lost that and now we've rediscovered it and... It is scary because we've kind of, I don't know, we've, we've been trained out of working and thinking and relating that way. But, yeah, that, that's where the power is. If you can unlock that, like it's just natural human nature to want to work like this. So, yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. So, um, yeah, why don't you, I'll let you guys talk now. You can 
Yeah, I know there was a, f- a couple of things I'd, I'd love to, to, to understand. Um, Lisa, you referenced the kind of the ways of thinking and being as leaders. Perhaps you guys could talk to us a little bit about that. Mm. Yeah, so we, we sort of distinguished three things that's quite often missing because, as Lisa said, people are so focused on structures it's amazing <laughs> how much they're just talking about structures and how much people in general neglect the crucial factors. And the crucial factors are uh, giving the whole authority uh, because then you get the maximum effects of self-management and it's a pity not to get that. Uh, it is... Um, that the leadership needs to shift in the way of relating and the way managers are being, if you if you still have managers, uh, and and that's really blind spot to to everyone uh, that uh, managers are in a certain way, and that goes all around the world that they are so responsible. Uh, so all managers goes around with go around with this question: How can I make Lisa be more engaged? How can I have uh, Emma hand in her reports in time? How will I make people? And that question sort of informs their uh, acting, talking, which is much more sending than listening, and so on. So it's a major shift that they need to do uh, in being. And, 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 and people are, what is being, you know? We don't, we don't talk about that, but, but we can sense it very, uh, very clearly when a manager is, you know, not empowering uh, or empowering. And, they say, mm-hmm. and, and the most also crucial thing is the working climate, as we call it, like the atmosphere, the dynamics between us people in a team, which is, totally affecting and impacting the business results. And that's also stated by research over and over again. Mm. But nevertheless, we talk, we never talk about it. We just talk about our surface issues, our, which is natural because mm. we work on certain things in businesses, but it's uh, so much potential in finding a language and address and maintain and manage a working climate built on trust, openness, psychological safety, and so on. Um, yeah. And Lisa, maybe, I mean, you have an outlook there in the world and, and see how much is lacking. Yeah, well, yeah, as you say, like people really talk a lot about structures and processes and like you know, if we implement this structure or this process, then everything will follow. And um, and people, th- this this concept, climate. When I when I first heard Karen and and some of my colleagues at Tough talking about it, I thought it was like a Swinglish mistranslation. Like I was like, <laughs> do you mean culture? Um, but it's distinct from culture because. Uh, and I I spoke to um, I've spoken to a couple of authors and researchers recently who've kind of given the academic perspective on it but the difference between culture and climate is that climate is really local so culture is generally like what we what we want to be like and what we are like as a company but climate can be local to a team a small team or even a a, you know a small group of people 
And the other thing about climate that's different to culture is that you can transform it, you can shift it almost like in an instant if we choose to. And so for me, it's really, it's really interesting to explore the kind of relational aspect of this and like how, how we can build our capacity to have totally different conversations. You know, if you imagine like an iceberg, which I know is a bit of a cliche, but, but it's useful for this. You know, as Karen says, we, we, we spend like 99% of our time talking about surface issues, which are important, you know, budgets, timelines, projects and so on. But underneath the surface is all of this stuff, you know, feelings, people's attitudes or collective mindsets towards something, uh, dynamics going on between people, the climate, you know, do people mm-hmm. feel kind of resigned, stressed, hopeless? Um, and, and then also what we call mooseheads, uh, which is why the book is called Mooseheads on the Table. And mooseheads is, is a metaphor for taboo issues that we don't talk about. It's the Swedish equivalent of elephant in the room, you could say. Um, And if you imagine like all around the world, people are having these meetings around board tables or, you know, virtually on Zoom like this. And there's this metaphorical moose head in between us that's bloody and rotten and there's flies buzzing around. And, and these moose heads are things like, you know, that we don't really trust that the manager or we're still angry at the company for reorganizing two years ago and we haven't really let it go or, uh, you know, all of these things that are in the way and we don't talk about them and it takes energy to tiptoe around them and not sort of, you know, clean them up. Um, so it's this huge kind of energy liberated when we talk about these things mm. and kind of, uh, you know, restore <laughs> the the climate. Um, so for me, that's like a huge, like revolutionary, radical shift. And mm. uh, and I think we're so conflict avoidant as a society, and that's kind of universal, even in different cultures. You know, like in the Netherlands, where they're more direct, people in the Netherlands still don't talk about under the surface things in a direct way. Seems to be pretty universally human because we've done these trainings all around the world. Um, so yeah, it's it's really interesting to to think about how you can create spaces that help people to learn those skills and talk talk about those things that we either don't see or we don't dare talk about. Mm. Uh, I love the the use of language that you guys have. Obviously, mooseheads is very specific to the region of the world, but um, just being able to give something a name or a label, at least when I was reading it and as you were talking, it is quite helpful for people then to connect with it then you talk about climate versus culture people go ah okay i get it i can have an impact at more local level and even even the the moose heads you know um because i know and people listening would feel the same it's so many situations you're in where there's people can see something sense it feel it but no one speaks about it um so how do you what do you talk to leaders and teams about in terms of being able to once they've kind of resonate with that language or they kind of understand that concept how do they move forward well it's like a new language really it's a first of all you have to listen to hear the climate the 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 working climate Um, i had a group of people uh, that i've never met before on zoom on sunday night just a few days ago and they had ended up in mistrust and conflicts and um by addressing a few things like 
in your people's intentions and also you know state the mistrust and so on they moved uh, forward uh, in one and a half hour from really sort of uh, yeah in a deep shit really <laughs> uh, <laughs> to uh, understanding and a line on that they their intention were uh, uh, yeah were similar so they were you know and then i debriefed this with with the manager and the manager didn't hear this uh, progress that i heard so it's like tuning into Mm. A, a whole different dimension and hearing and, and managers are not trained in listening under the surface or listening so much at all because they are trained in broadcasting sending being inspirational uh, motivational and, and speak speak mm. speak uh, a lot um, and often uh, the manager's responsibility is to keep people happy and and that's done by a lot of positive things uh, and which is horrible if it's on top of something that's not working um so it, uh, so it's learning a new language and not only for managers it's also using the, the communication skills in the team uh, members because there are always people that can hear more things and and are sensitive what's happening and and they are resources in this so it's really to equip teams with a new way of talking about the ungraspable and address it and manage it together. And it's quite, um, it's not glamorous. So when there are, you know, startups and, and, and people talk about their culture, it's, it's like really, you know, happy, it's fast, everyone should be happy, we should be constructive and positive and and. There's no room for being, you know, afraid or insecure or angry or being human, really. <laughs> and uh, we have we had a client that sort of asked us, "Don't don't use those harsh words of yours, you know. We want harmony, and <laughs> harmony is not so productive." So, yeah. Yeah. But, but on the other, when you get to a safe climate where you know each other you know that you are you know for each other you you empower each other uh, and you you don't have to sort of think what are they thinking because you know if you know what if people have some trouble they will tell you and sort it out sort of so it's much more yeah it's very safe to work in a in a environment like that and it's very rare mm. I think yeah, it takes whole, real, real commitment, doesn't it? Sorry, Lisa, go on. No, I was just going to say it, it, the whole language thing is so interesting because all of this stuff, like Karen said, kind of sits in our collective blind spots. And somehow language is a very powerful tool of making it visible. That if we give something a name, if we, if we kind of put words to it, then we can create a shared picture of what's going on. Mm. So there's like a a very uh, powerful thing in just in just naming you know the climate so it sounds like everyone's feeling you know really demotivated and and distrustful and it's sort of heavy and I, I'm, I'm affected by it too it's like the energy's really low and 
And people think that if you do this, you'll make it worse. It's like putting mm. fuel on the fire. <laughs> but strangely enough, it, the opposite is true. By naming it how it is without trying to change it or fix it and kind of being with it, it's sort of, that is what allows it to shift. So kind of putting words to things that aren't visible or tangible and getting a shared picture of things. And also I think, you know, this term moosehead, people people really like that and resonate with it. And I think there are other words in other cultures. I've heard people use stinky fish sometimes for a similar thing. You know, I think we have a stinky fish yeah. that we need to talk about. Yeah. And I think that also somehow destigmatizes talking about conflicts that we have this mindset i think as human beings that conflict is bad and we should avoid it you know we, we this term conflict resolution like you can sort of resolve it and tie it up neatly with a bow yeah. but conflict is so natural like of course we'll have conflicts because we're all completely different human beings with different experiences and if we can sort of embrace conflicts and sort of see them as as a normal part of collaboration then we can kind of profit from the things on the other side of conflict because if we do stay with them and talk through them and process them together, what we get on the other side of that is, you know, deeper relationships, new perspectives, you know, new ideas, uh, deeper understanding, deeper trust. We learn things together. We become stronger instead of uh, kind of avoiding. It costs a lot of energy to avoid conflicts and pretend they're not there because they are there. Um mm. So it's this kind of paradox that talking about mm. it and stating it how it is without trying to change it is what allows it to then shift. Mm. Yeah. And then comes the objection, but should we have therapy at work? You know? <laughs> uh, doesn't this take ages? Don't talk and talk about, you know, uh, but you can find really good, even from Harvard that can sort of connect atmosphere and working climate to business results even share value stock on the stock market and so on so we ha we have like uh, research in theory that sort of yeah that that makes this a good thing to do but uh, when when we try to do it sometimes it's like really unfamiliar yeah <clears throat> It's almost like a key language is like a bit of a key to unlock something. And um, yeah, I love what you said about, yeah, people have an aversion to get to conflict because maybe they're, they're you're creating something that trying to uncover something that mightn't be there. But like you said, it, it exists. And from, from that, the growth can come for, for teams. So yeah, that's, it's so interesting. Um, uh, yeah. The, the language. So what, what else would you, um, like think, think about the context for a contact center. Um, are there some, some ways that I suppose these, this, sorry, I'll start again. The, the thing I'm thinking about is if you are a, you're in a, you're in a team within a large organization and you have a desire to change the, the climate within your team and start to bring in some of the, these concepts around self-management for your team, but you but organizationally, they maybe they're not ready and you're, but you're, you're passionate about trying to affect some change within your little part of that world. How might you go about that? Is that still possible given that the organisational broader climate may not be open and accepting? How do you, and obviously you're then, you're part of that bigger um, system. How, how might someone think their way through that? 
Yeah, I mean, the good news is that it's about talking and talking. It's not against the company policy. It's like how you talk. You can, I mean, it's not regulated. So you can, mm-hmm. as a part of a team or a workplace, you can always bring up the idea. Like I noticed that we have, yeah, we have something in between us that are, you know, hindering or stopping what we want to accomplish. And this is, you know, our atmosphere, which is a bit silent and and uh, we, we're not really sort of straight with each other. I think we could benefit from having it another way. What do you think? So that's how you start the conversation to involve others in some sort of self-interest of changing the, the way we relate and communicate to each other. And, and, and usually... People are not that uh, reluctant in a team. Somebody could say, yeah, I agree, you know, and, uh, and just by doing that, things change. Uh, and, and then you can go on from there. So maybe uh, next step would be, how, how is it here? Could we sort of word, put words to how, how the air is in this workplace? And then, mm-hmm. and then next is, how would we like it to be? more open, more, you know, whatever. So it's it's yes. actually really easy in a way, and it takes a lot of courage, of course. Mm-hmm. I think also, like, to your point about, you know, what you can influence if you're in a, in a team that wants to work in a certain way, but you're within a much larger, maybe quite command and control, top-down sort of culture in an organisation, you know, I, I speak to a lot of people who come to events or trainings and they feel really lonely because, you know, mm-hmm. they really want to do something and they're sort of stuck in this system. It's often people in like the public sector as well who feel this way. But if you start to have these conversations and talking about climate and, and things like this, you can also kind of empower yourself to relate to that in a different way. So you may not be able to change, you know, the rest of the organization, but you can say, so this is the reality, you know, the rest of the organization needs X, Y, Z from us, and they're going to be in that way that it seems like that's not going to change. So how do we want to relate to that? You know, what's, what's a, this is like the mindset piece to me that's so interesting. And even though there's a lot of research out there, you know, about growth mindset and things like that, and that shows that mindset makes a huge difference in terms of people's performance and, you know, satisfaction and stuff, there's still like skepticism out there, or I think people who don't, uh, who aren't aware of it, that this is a thing. And they think, well, that sounds fluffy and, and silly, Mm. but it, but it's, it makes such a difference in terms of like, otherwise what you end up as these like us and them dynamics, and that's miserable for everyone. So it's like finding a way of seeing this. How could we relate to this in a way that would be okay? Like, Mm. well, maybe we can see it as like, it's a it's a it's kind of a game and we need to do these things to kind of please them and we see that as necessary and we focus our energy on the things that we can change you know so Mm. there are there are some really great examples now of self-managing teams within larger organizations like uh an organization that we've come across recently danfoss which is like a large engineering company um and one of the leaders there vivek menon is his name took a, a business unit of like 70, 80 people within a, you know, thousands of people, large traditional organization. 
and over the last, I think, four years, you know, helped to transform it to completely self-managing. They have no managers. They, they took all the manager roles and split them up and said, hey, it's kind of crazy that we expect one person to be able to do all of these things, you know, people things, functional things. Why don't we break that out into different parts? And then the people who have those skills or are interested in that can do those different roles. Mm-hmm. And they had a, they had great success and, and, and also were very careful about not creating this us and them dynamic. And they also knew that the mindset part was really important. It was also the sort of the bit that they found the trickiest, but they knew that they, they couldn't neglect that bit. So it is really possible to have these mm. like little pockets. Um, and, and that's where this stuff that we're talking about is really helpful because it can make the difference in terms of whether we kind of suffer in something or whether we can kind of empower ourselves to see it in a different way. Mm. And of course, it's much easier. We have this great opportunity. We, we worked with a company in logistic sector in Sweden here with 180 people. And they had a really challenging atmosphere three years ago of mistrust and silence, which is more or less transformed uh, everywhere uh, in the company. And now they are exploring self-management. So many of the teams, they don't without, they work without the manager uh, since a few years now. And they are going to start a new contact center within logistics uh, with 17 people. So we, we had the chance to recruit people out of uh, looking on mindset from the start of being interested in self-manager, being prepared not to have a manager, uh, and, and now they they started just the, uh, last week, uh, the first day at work. And it, I was there and met them. And it was like, it was almost unreal for me that this happened, you know, because <laughs> in, in, yeah, with my history, it's like, this is what I've been dreaming about. And, that, uh, and, and somebody on LinkedIn said, oh, this has been a really challenging week, you know, on my new work. But it's like magic. It's like, unheard mm. of it's like and and mm. uh, and it's going to be really interesting uh, to follow them and and support them so of course but 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 also startups you know with a few people can do that but not many does i mean it, they start and then they get 12 and then they are hierarchical in for no reason <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great um yeah, I've had that experience myself working with teams and, and helping them to explore self-management. And um, when they start, it's painful for them, but I, I'm looking at it and I'm grinning and thinking, this is wonderful, this is great. I can see and feel the tension that's going on, but they they don't quite see it in that moment that that they're kind of laying the foundations for something that can be, you know, soon they will see that it's, it's quite good. But that initial exposing themselves to the tension that exists once you start to have the right conversations and, you know, talk about conflicts and empower people to have conversations they've never had before. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty scary for people. So, so in this, in this example that you're talking about with the 17 people, you're saying that they had the chance to try and recruit people with that mindset to begin with, and then were able to form the basis of the team from that. So I'm curious, do you know how they, what were they looking for when they when they yeah, were, so were I trying to find this mindset? The, 
Yeah, I was involved in the recruiting process and we did it in a completely different way. So there was a professional recruiter first who sort of investigated in if they could do the job, you know, the, the, the actual job skills, this the, the sort of uh, experience from the actual work. Uh, and then they had another interview with people from the company. And then I and the HR director had a 30 minute interview with about 30 people, I think in the end, where we only focused on how they were being, how they were uh, communicating, if they could listen, how their view was on responsibility. So it's just fluffy questions. And we didn't, we didn't only uh, listen to the answers, we, we, we listened to how they were being. And uh, that was the first time I could do that without mixing it up in a recruitment with, uh, you know, CVs mm. <laughs> at all. We, we didn't know at all on what, what was on the CVs. Uh, mm. and, and that was really interesting experience because you heard so much more than you mm. usually do. Yeah, it's it's so much more interesting to, to 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 interview someone or to assess someone without the normal structure yeah. to really get the feel for the human side of them. Like, who are they really? What do they value? Yeah, um, yeah. And that's, they, that's, they also that's had to sign. They also had to sign a a, a contract attached to their contract, <laughs> the, the real contract, that they were aware of this is going to be self-managed uh, and with all, <laughs> all, all what's that. So, so they can't, you know, complain after two months. Oh, this doesn't work. We want managers. That's yeah, not right. an option. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> I, I remember in the book there was um, uh, there was a, a, a letter or there was there's a document that was given mm. to people that almost to discourage scare them, them from... away letter. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about how did that come about? I, I love this. So when <laughs> when we first started writing the book, I went to visit the contact center that um, that's featured in the book um, and met some of the people there. And it's just a kind of side note before I talk about the letter as well, is that it, what I wasn't expecting in all of this is that that it's hard and people struggle with it. Because when I was reading about it in theory, I was like, this sounds great. Why wouldn't everyone want to work like this? You know, more freedom, <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Um, but when I was interviewing some of the people at, at, at this contact center and I was saying, so what was it like? Most of them were saying it's been really hard and it's really challenging. And like, sometimes we thought this isn't going to work. And I was thinking, oh gosh, this sounds all quite negative. But then they were all saying, but it's so rewarding and fulfilling and I could not go back now. And I've learned so much and I've grown. And um, and, and I learned about this letter um, that they that they designed because because they were having trouble recruiting people because they were hiring people who seemed great and they were saying that we work in a self-managed way this is what it's like and of course these people were saying yeah sounds great yeah I can definitely do that yes I'm a responsible person yeah absolutely and then in reality they were really you know struggling um, because in practice it's totally different and and so they they decided to save them kind of time and energy that they would write this scare them away letter which sort of says you know if you work here you won't have things that you have in other companies like certain you will have to help us build certain processes and things and you won't have a manager that's that you can go to for these things you need to be responsible for them and it's going to be like this and so on 
Um, and I think after that, it was they were much more successful, weren't they, Karen? Um, yeah, and the. I was amazed by somebody who was very much considering accepting an offer and got the letter. And the next day she said, well, this was great, you know, because I can see where I am with life and and small kids. This is not right for me. (laughs) Yeah. And it's yeah, funny because right. I, I, I shared, I've shared the letter on, on social media before and, and some people are like, this is amazing. And other people are like, you can't do this. Like, why, why do you want to scare people away for, for <laughs> recruitment? Don't you want to attract the best talent? They sort of don't get that it's like, this is the, this mm. is the way to really get that, that transparency, that adult to adult dynamic from the beginning. Mm. Yeah, but, it, but I mean, it's not for everyone, is it? I've had an experience myself where we, we ran it with a team and this is before I'd really learned much about it and was just trying to experiment and see what would happen. And it was all safe for the team, but towards the end, we let the team vote on whether they wanted to continue doing it. And they, yeah, there was enough people that said, you know, we, this is not for us. We want a manager. We want someone to tell us this parts of the job. We would just want to be told what to do. Like we don't have to make all these decisions um, we should get a pay rise if we're going to be making these decisions, you know, where we're, we're leading. So completely the paradigm that people have of their job changes, I think, in this. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it isn't for everyone. But um, is, is, there, is it possible to, um, I suppose when people have the experience, it, it might grow on them and they might think, oh, great, this is, this is, I can see how this will work. But are there some, some things that you can do deliberately and intentionally to help people make that transition? Yeah, definitely. But it's interesting that you talk about the prerequisites also, because uh, you have to be careful about prerequisites uh, to see if it's uh, working, you know, and that could be like the, the top management doesn't know uh, what what is it all about or, or so, you know. Um, so definitely you can equip people and and uh, and have it have it work um i think i mean although the the world moves forward it's also a big question about you know businesses in a big context about profit and 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 like max optimizing profit and uh, uh, not, you know, grow really, really, really fast, like mm. scaling, you know, this year from 10 persons to 120 and this uh, insanity yeah. <laughs> uh, that people are caught up in and owners and boards um, mm. that you have to be careful about because they will, won't have the patience. They will just see chaos and uh and yeah so so there are lots of and and i think that's different in different parts of the world also um the it sector helps a lot with agile because they sort of uh (laughs) got normality to it or this is how we do it so that that helps but in in other sectors it's like it's too early Mm. Mm. I think it's I think I've I've consider it part of my mission to convey how challenging this is and how this is not a quick fix because I think 
a lot of organizations and people try and implement things like self-management and after a short time when people sort of freak out and are saying no no no, we need more structure we need more direction they say oh okay self-management doesn't work people need to be told what to do shut it down Woof, that nearly killed our company da, da, da. and it's it's so like premature and I think it does a real disservice to it so I think it's really great to hear stories of people who say like this was really difficult and really like for the mm. first year two years we struggled, you know, we saw some results, but it was hard. And um, because it's, in most cases, it's like at least a year before, for, depending on how big the organization is, often too, before you really start to see shifts where that there's a great um, kind of model of thinking about this, actually, that one of the guests on my podcast used. Um, he's from a company called Ian Martin Group. That's like a Canadian recruitment company, and they've been self-managing for about five years. Um, and he said that he noticed people go through these three stages, head, heart, habit, that in the first stage, you sort of tell people, this is what it's going to involve. You know, you can read Frederick Alou's book or you can, you know, listen to some podcasts or, you know, get this intellectually. This is what, how we're going to do it. Um, and then the, the phase after that is the heart phase. And that's like the messy middle where people start mm. to, realize, oh, this is quite hard. Oh, I feel a bit vulnerable now. Now I'm getting feedback or suddenly now I need to be in a different way. My whole career, I've been a manager and I've been praised for this. And now suddenly I need to do other things and that's really hard. And um, and if you can sort of stay with that stage and, and support people and listen and create space for people to share how it is uh, and kind of normalize that, you know, that it's scary and it's everything in our brains is saying, oh, this is this is difficult difficult this is unfamiliar then you can kind of get through to the next stage which is habit where it just starts to become how we do things this is how mm. we do things now and it's not linear you kind of cycle back through the stages but i find that quite helpful to, as a way of thinking about it that that it you know takes time where we're sort of undoing a lot of conditioning decades of conditioning you know and that doesn't happen yeah. overnight but if we can be patient, if we can be compassionate, both to people who have been managers before and people who haven't been, they're kind of different transitions, um, but equally scary. You know, I think sometimes people vilify managers or managers are idiots and, you know, all they want to do is boss people around. It's like, no, they're terrified. Like their whole identity <laughs> and worth is wrapped up in this stuff. It's, yeah. it's scary to let that go and if we can be compassionate yeah. and say yeah I, I see you and it's hard to, to find a new way of, of bringing value but it's possible mm. that's a, an awesome point it's, it sounds almost like at the point where it feels the most uncomfortable almost is you know you're on the right track because you're you're uncovering the feelings that need to be confronted to move forward so you're almost on the cusp of the you know the fr frontier of of really realizing the benefits of it and yeah that that's really cool and also probably reassuring if anyone wants to wants to be doing this and is starting to have those feelings keep keep going like you said because you you might be pretty close to to making some real progress um you also mentioned managers and leaders and, and i i love that point too because um often i what i experience is the frontline teams gravitate towards self-management because they they see the opportunity and it's and it's what they've always wanted and it feels right and albeit still still a bit scary but leaders are, are almost feel a bit lost 
okay, well, what do I do now? I, what I just observing and I'm trying to create the right environment or climate and I'm now building capability or whatever it might be that it just changes the whole way they think about their role. And um, like you said, it, it's, it's, it's hard being a leader. Um, so what, yeah, what, what's, what's in the toolkit for leaders? What, what kind of things should they be thinking about in terms of reimagining their role in this? Yeah. To, to be successful in the future, if you're at least young, <laughs> you need to realize that you have to change. That's the first sort of confront how stuck you are in something that's starting to be outdated. Um, so that's one thing. But if I'm even more radical, many managers are experts and, and in their fields and in many sectors, they get promoted because it should be like that. And, and they're not particularly maybe interested in people and empowering people. For instance, in healthcare, you can see that, or I mean, the law firms and, and so on. And then I think it's better that you are an expert and a resource uh, and, and sort of contributes in other ways than trying to manage people um, in, in mm. the new ways of working. So that's the harsh reality I think <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've quite often made mistakes keeping managers thinking that they could change which mm. and it's really hard to change from the traditional role of driving being knowledgeable talking uh, you know I I am um, I'm connected to a small company where they think they are self-managed you know and they're not, you know, the manager talks 90% of the time on the meetings and so on. So, yeah, it's really sort of challenging. It will, it will if this mm. continues and, and uh, evolves, this, uh, what we're talking about, uh, it's going to be hard for managers. They have to find a new a way of thinking. Yeah. I've, I've often thought about the, um, you know, with the pandemic and, and uh, people working remotely and from home and as different parts of the world start to come out of it and have a bit more freedom of movement and people this talking about going back to the office and how many days a week and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I've looking at many different case studies and organisations mandating certain number of days and all this kind of thing. And I, I think to myself, geez, we almost, it's going to be a generation before we actually get this right because it feels like some of these leaders almost just have to retire and, you know, go out into the, go off into the sunset before any of this stuff changes because, yeah, I think I get this sense that it's it's so ingrained in, in, in the way that people see leadership and their role that, yeah, it's, it's going to take... They almost need to die out. <laughs> one, one of well, a better term. Well, the problem is some of them are thirty-two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they need better role models. I don't know what the solution is. Yeah, that is the heartbreaking thing. Sometimes that I, I hear a lot of people talking at conferences about, like, well, the younger generations—they're not going to be like this. And it's it's so funny how that in my experience that's not true at all that it's mm, so right. ingrained in all of us that 
as soon as I go to enter the world of work, then I kind of, I play this role where, you know, I want to play the management game. I want to work my way up the ladder. And as soon as I'm in a leadership role, you know, it's in movies, it's in culture. Like it's just what we know, like that hierarchical dynamic is so ingrained. It doesn't matter if you're a millennial or, uh, or I can't can't even remember what the younger ones are called now, but it, in my experience, it doesn't make a difference. It's, it's usually like you have black sheep, a few of them around the world who naturally are like this <laughs> yeah. and that many of them are the people who founded these you know radical brilliant companies mm. but in general you know all of us it's like the matrix all of us need to be unplugged but many yeah. of us don't even know that we're you know plugged yeah. in. yeah if you look at the entrepreneurs they're all sort of running and being traditional and then all of a sudden as lisa says two people like the beetroot founders they are 30 plus and they're completely rare and different and you don't you know what where, where did they come from and how yeah. how come yeah i guess you're right because the, we all come through very similar systems from you know primary school or our schooling and education and it kind of puts us into these cookie cutters doesn't it and then by the time no matter what age we are whatever what generation we're part of by the time we get to get it gets the working world we've been conditioned into this way um yeah so yeah how do we what what were the what was the the conditions that created those people and how do we how do we get that how do we kind of proliferate that out across the the world to to, to radically change the way that people lead is there does it need to start earlier like does something radically need to change in education of kids earlier or like where is it or do we just try try to affect change at the at the you know the symptom i know that probably doesn't work but yeah what, what's your what's your take on that how does how does this movement become huge and the the dominant movement for want of a better term well on the good side it's much stronger than any other trends i've seen in my years which is quite many now <laughs> uh, okay. so it's like it's unstoppable in another way than earlier trends were uh, so that's good it's also sort of people won't uh, yeah people won't tolerate anything else uh, so, so I think it's employees uh, or like mm. people that are not managers that are going maybe to drive the um, the change mm. and also I'm thinking about Africa, for instance, where they don't have big companies. And if they start to, you know, grow businesses, maybe they can jump over this uh, this unnecessary stage that we were in. Mm-hmm. From mm. There's a huge uh, cooperative movement in Africa. I forget which country in Africa it was, but, you know, I, I'm excited by that. And I interviewed uh, someone on on my podcast a few weeks ago who was working at a higher education institution in Rwanda, and they've adopted self management uh, recently, just just under a year, so it's quite recent. But uh, but that's like shifted already, like massively engagement in the school where people are uh, like lower level staff are now actually influencing decisions, and uh, they disbanded the global council and. Um, so I, I, I kind of have hope that if if enough stories, I mean, that's the great thing about like this age as well, is that 
you can connect. Like I always say mm. to people, find your tribe. You know, when you were saying before, when people when people get to that edge of their comfort zone, when it feels most difficult, that's when you know maybe you're on to something. I think also that's the moment where it's like, if you haven't already, reach out and find other people. Like, you know, you can find things now on, on the internet, through social media, through these books, through these podcasts, through these communities. Find other people and, and share stories like, yeah, this is this is what we're going through. Oh, how did you get through that? Oh, you did that. Oh, we can try that maybe. Oh, here's something we tried. Because I think that that I hope will accelerate the movement. But having said that, I if I'm being kind of cynical, I don't think we're gonna see this become dominant, so to speak, in yeah. my lifetime for sure. <laughs> Which is kind of sad. But it's still worth doing yeah. because you know, every person who who discovers this way of working and being says that it's you know life-changing and they could never go mm. back so it's worth mm. it just for the small pocket of organizations around the world that are doing it yeah it's, it's incredible it's incredibly powerful well perhaps if we get to mars maybe maybe that can, we can start from scratch there and this this could be the way but it's going to be the silicon valley billionaires that get there first <laughs> yeah. so it's going to be in their yeah, vision yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true that's very true Oh, well, that's good. Well, look, maybe maybe we'll start to wrap things up um, on that note. But that's um, that's been wonderful. I so enjoyed that, and and I think you you do talk about in your book as well that sharing of examples and and you know as people are going through the process of learning about this and, and try trying it, share with them those those stories so that they can be reassured that they are on the right track. So, um, of course, you have your podcast. Lisa, Leadamorphosis. Um, and is that on all the streaming services? People can yes. find you anywhere. Yeah. Yep. Um, and in general, how do people find you guys if they wanted to get in touch or follow you? How do they do that? Yeah, we, we are on the LinkedIn, of course, Cornelius and Lisa Gill. And also, Tuff has have free, free seminars called Stop Motivating Your Employees that are for free uh, if you're interested as a manager how to shift. So. Awesome. Oh, that's great. I'll definitely check those out as well. Um, how about you, Lisa? How do people find you? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Disrupt and Learn. Um, and then, yeah, LinkedIn podcast. I think that's it. Yeah. That's it. Very good. Very cool. All right. Well, um, same goes for us too. You can, you can find us in all the usual places, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, please uh, give us a review, like, subscribe, all that cool stuff. Um, and yeah, check out Lisa's podcast as well. Go and go and have a listen to that and, and follow follow that as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Um, I again recommend everyone reads your book. Um, it's it's a great read. I, I raced through it. It's, there was just so much good stuff in there. I, I ate it all up. So um, yeah, check it out. Moosehead's on the table. Um, and yeah, thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>